Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Kate Crawford about her new book, Atlas of AI, Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence. Atlas of AI was published by Yale University Press on April 6th, 2021. And for those of you listening to this episode on the day it airs, that was indeed yesterday. So if you want to buy your own copy of the book, you can find a link in our show notes, as well as a link to a website that helps you find books at your local indie bookstore. Dr. Kate Crawford is a leading scholar of the social and political implications of artificial intelligence. She is a research professor of communication and STS at USC Annenberg, a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research in New York City, and the inaugural visiting chair for AI and justice at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. When we started this podcast almost a year ago, we came up with a list of people who we were considering dream guests. So these were people who we would be unbelievably ecstatic to have on the show if we were ever given an opportunity to. And one of the first people to land on this list was Kate Crawford because she has played such a huge incredible, insurmountable role in both Dylan and I's work and scholarship and research. And starting from when I first heard a speech of hers in 2017, she was a big reason why I landed in this field in the first place. And so having her on the show now to talk about her new book, which is a culmination of so much of the incredible work that she has done for this field and for this community, it feels so full circle for us and we feel so unbelievably lucky to have been given this opportunity and so we are just so excited to share this amazing conversation with Kate with all of you and we are so excited to hear what all of you have to say about her book. So we're on the line today with the one and only Kate Crawford. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to be here, Dylan and Jess. I've been listening to you all through, throughout the pandemic. I feel like you've become like my audio buddies during this time. So it's lovely to talk with you. Uh, no, absolutely. And today it's very exciting because we're talking about your new book, Atlas of AI. And so the first question we have for you is, what is Atlas of AI? And maybe it would be helpful to unpack what you mean by Atlas and perhaps what you mean by AI. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the idea behind this book was really to explore how artificial intelligence is made. And, and I mean that in its widest possible sense, it, essentially thinking about the economic, political, cultural and historical forces that shape what we call artificial intelligence. So I think when some people hear the term AI, they often focus on the technical side. That might be algorithms, it might be neural nets, or you might think about specific technical platforms like Amazon's Alexa or Google's Cloud. And I always think of Russell and Norvig's classic textbook on AI. They, they use that description that AI is an intelligent agent that takes the best possible action in any situation. And I think if we, if we focus on the way these definitions are doing work and, and setting the frame, 
they really sort of point to how AI should be understood and measured and valued and governed. And of course, if AI is defined by consumer brands for corporate infrastructure, then ultimately marketing and advertising have predetermined the horizon. But if we also see AI systems as somehow more reliable or rational than any human, that's of course what you would assume if it can make any best possible action, then it also suggests that we should be trusting these systems to make high stakes decisions in health and education and criminal justice and you name it. So I think in so many ways, these perspectives leave out the big story. And they're the stories of the human labor that's needed to make AI systems work, the vast amounts of energy and mineral resources to build AI infrastructures, and of course, the histories and structural inequalities of the data that's used, as though it is somehow just neutrally presenting ground truth. So it's been clear to me, um, you know, in the five plus years of writing this book, that I really had to dive deeper into AI at a much bigger scope and ultimately explore the materiality of how artificial intelligence is made. And and the reason I I like this metaphor of an atlas is that I think atlases are very unusual books. They they help us look at things at different scales, if you will. So we can look at the scale of a planet or we can zoom in and see a city or a mountain range. And for me, that's the right metaphor for thinking about how AI works. The aim here is to sort of leave the abstract sort of nowhere of algorithmic uh, perspectives and and ultimately to to put it in specific somewheres, the places where people and institutions are making choices and looking at how power is consolidated and operationalized through these systems. And, you know, it's it's interesting too, I sort of think about um, one of my favorite writers, in fact, about technology, the physicist and technology critic, Ursula Franklin. Um, she's a she's a favorite of many of us I know in this space, but but she has this lovely line where she talks about how maps are really designed to bridge this gap between the known and the as yet unknown, and that they're these testaments of sort of collective knowledge and insight. So for me, creating an atlas was also a way of of really giving a nod to all of the scholars and activists and artists who've really shaped the way that I think about artificial intelligence as well. And in the field of AI ethics, or I guess responsible AI, um, which you have been incredibly foundational in, we tend to assume that everyone has a similar definition of AI without really questioning that very often. And I thought it was interesting in your book, you mentioned that you thought artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. And so I'm wondering, Kate, what do you think that artificial intelligence is? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I I agree with you that it's so commonly an assumed term and it's really not. I think it's it's this definitional work is incredibly important. Um, Certainly for many years when I give talks uh, or I teach, I really sort of start by defining artificial intelligence in in different ways. First is obviously to think about the technical and to look at the the histories of different technical approaches over the last 60 years. But then I look at the social practices that go into making AI. And that means who's in the room, who's making decisions about what the system will do, who was it optimized for and who benefits from it. And then also to look at the infrastructural questions, to look at what are the backend infrastructures that make this possible? What are the economic infrastructures that make this possible? And what are the sorts of large ecological processes that are used to make these sorts of systems work? So for me, it's really trying to 
widen that lens way out in terms of how we understand what artificial is and, and artificial intelligence is. And I think when you do that, you find that it's neither artificial nor intelligent. It's, it's both embodied and material. It's made from these natural resources, human labor, logistics and histories and classifications. And it's not intelligent in the sense of anything like human intelligence. It's not able to really discern anything um, without enormous sort of data sets or predefined rules and rewards and depends entirely on these much wider set of political and social structures. That was something that Jess and I picked up on, were pretty fascinated about in your analysis in this book was around optimization. And I'm wondering if you could unpack a bit more about who are these systems optimized for and then perhaps who are they leaving out? Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, is that we have to think about that through the entire supply chain. You need to go all the way back to the miners who are actually extracting the minerals that these systems will be built from. You need to look through uh, the corporate histories in terms of who's been building these systems and who runs them. And then you also need to, to think about the engineering workforces that are there to essentially construct systems that serve populations that all too often are imagined to look and act just like them. So, you know, we have issues throughout the entire pipeline of AI production where we need to think about who are these systems for and whose interests do they serve. Certainly one of the, the most dominant trends, and, and, and this was something that I did a lot in the book, is to go back through the histories of who funded artificial intelligence from the beginning. As, as we know, you know, the Department of Defense in the US and militaries around the world have been very powerful funders of the priorities behind AI. And I think in some ways have really shaped the way these systems engage with the world from surveillance priorities through to uh, ideas around targeting and scoring and ranking. These are priorities that have been traditionally associated with militaries and policing. But also we have to think about the influence of capital. And certainly in the last 15 years, the increasing push of these systems into commercial logics, into being large engines of capital, uh, that really means we have to look at the ways in which they serve advertising priorities, they serve profit priorities. Uh, it's, it's very difficult these days to point to systems that are operating, operating really outside of those logics. Another thing that you mention in this book that seems to be a little bit of a recurring theme is you, you call AI or the industry of AI as an extractive industry. And so I was wondering if you could speak to what you mean by this extractive industry and how it might have shaped the stories that you chose to tell in this book. Well, that's interesting because certainly, you know, the creation of contemporary AI systems is entirely reliant on exploiting energy and mineral resources from the planet, cheap labor and data at scale. And this is something we might know conceptually or we might put it out of our minds, but I really wanted to see that at work and to come to understand how those patterns of extraction function, how they're connected to each other, but also how they work in both space and time. And what I mean by that is, is it actually means visiting those different locations around the planet um, and seeing what happens there, but also tracing the ideas and the histories and the materials from the past that are used to shape our current technical systems. So that meant going to actual sort of mining sites. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I, um, I traveled to Silver Peak, Nevada, which is the last functioning lithium mine in the United States. And, you know, here is where you can really see one of the sites sort of in this ancient desert landscape where, you know, huge amounts of lithium is being extracted to create 
lithium-ion batteries. And weirdly, they don't sound very sexy, but lithium-ion batteries are sort of the backbone of how a lot of you know, uh, consumer AI devices work, um, from the iPhone all the way through to uh, Tesla uh, electric vehicles. Um, but again, we are dealing with a crisis of availability in terms of how much lithium-ion we imagine is possible to still extract. In fact, I was just reading a very recent report that came out a couple of weeks ago now that is saying that if we manage to move to best practices in terms of recycling lithium, which currently we, we are not too great at, I have to say, um, we could be fortunate enough for these reserves to last until just after 2100. If we are not so uh, highly careful and, and recycle these resources, we could be looking at 2040. So that's an extraordinary time horizon to be thinking about one of these kinds of core mineral components to the planetary computation networks that we are so reliant on. And the more work that I did um, looking into things like rare earth minerals, looking into the energy expenditure costs of things like large language models, which um, others like Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell have written about, it is really extraordinary to think about how close we are to running out of some really key resources. And, and indeed, the Biden administration has released a report looking at sort of the security risks of being reliant on particular rare earth minerals that uh, in many cases are extracted from other places around the world, specifically places like China and Australia. So looking at those global extraction dependencies in AI was, was a really profound part of the journey for me in, in, in doing, this, doing this book and doing this research. Obviously then too, um, we have to think about labor and labor extraction. Again, how that works. We are familiar with things like Amazon Turk workers, but I also wanted to see the, essentially the kind of almost factory infrastructures that AI companies rely on. And so one of the sites that I went to was to go inside uh, an Amazon fulfillment warehouse um, and to see the experience of work uh, for people who really the logistical connective tissue, if you will, between robots and boxes delivering at your door. You know how the, the, these are people who are being paid in some cases $15 an hour, but that is much less than factory work at that level of difficulty used to be paid as recently as 20 years ago. And to really go into those places and to see the human costs, to, to see what it is physically to go through the stress of sort of highly repetitive work, but also under algorithmic management systems, things like the picking rate that really are there to, to pressure every worker to try and make sure that they're collecting all of the things off shelves and, and packing them into containers in the minimum possible time. So for me, going to these sites and spending time in these locations was a really important way of understanding extraction and how maximum value is being extracted from human bodies and labor, how it's being extracted from the earth, and also, of course, how it's being extracted from data in terms of the large-scale training sets that I've certainly spent many years now studying and looking at. So it's, it's really, for me, it became this unifying, uh, I'd say a unifying metaphor, but it's, it's far more real and material than that. It is indeed the way in which AI is itself becoming this sort of super extractive industry in the same way that, that mining really emerged as the sort of industrial uh, extraction powerhouse of the 19th and 20th centuries. So how did we get into this mess is my question. And I guess by this, I mean, uh, I think there is a myth out there. We, we hear a myth out there that 
AI is this either post-material space or it's this space that doesn't have materiality behind it. Um, and obviously in your work, you're claiming otherwise that there's a almost, a, there, it is like by definition, a material space. Um, so how do we, how do we square that? And then also in the history, how did we get into this mess? Well, I mean, it's interesting too, in the way in which artificial intelligence is a product and a reflection of late capitalism. So it's, you know, it's, it's almost impossible these days to talk about AI without talking about capitalism, but without doing the, the deep dive history on that, let's just look at the ideologies that I think are operating that have really brought us to this point where we don't look at those material consequences. And I think there's, there's two really significant ones. Certainly the big one is this idea of Cartesian dualism, that sort of mind and body are separate and that therefore you can create something like disembodied intelligence that, that has no sort of relation to material forms. Um, and that is, is very much this kind of core idea uh, that Ellen Ullman has this, has this fantastic line where she talks about this, this myth that the mind is like a computer and the computer is like a mind has infected decades of computer science and has ultimately become an original sin for the field that we, we really think about these systems as somehow just being you know disembodied intelligence that we ultimately aren't connecting to the earth or to human bodies at all and i think the other thing that that's that's really problematic here is is the ways in which we assume that intelligence itself is something that is is easily created in his ways without being drawn from existing data and I know this is something that that you've looked at a lot in this podcast but the way in which I think we have been blind to the sorts of worldviews that get smuggled in by the data sets that we scrape off the internet um, that is has been another I think very serious problem for the field which we're really just seeing the fruits of now that by using data sets that essentially just represent extremely normative, um, racialized and gendered logics of the world, we didn't really think hard enough about what that would do to the technical systems that are built on those large scale data sets. So I think these are some of the slippages that have happened, particularly in the last 15 years in AI development, that have brought us to the sorts of, sort of critical junctures that we're at today. Yeah, and you mentioned at some point in the book that computer scientists have fallen into this pattern of thinking that uh, the computer speaks or thinks like a human and the human thinks like a computer. And uh, I'm curious if we are uh, rejecting that deterministic viewpoint, as it seems to be in this book, what, what do you think of AI and its ability to be intelligent? Do you see AI as an intelligent thing? You know, I mean, I think you, you can't really have that conversation without looking at the history of intelligence itself and how this term has been used uh, as the premise for everything from, you know, profound programs of eugenics through to the sorts of, you know, IQ tests that were designed to really favor people who came from the most privileged backgrounds and to, to work to the detriment to those who didn't. So there, you know, the, the term intelligence itself is intertwined with ideas of, of class and race and gender and has been used to exclude as much as it's been used to try and lionize and prioritize particular types of, of social activity. So I think in that sense, I'm much more interested in thinking about 
what these large-scale technical systems are good at. What can they do? Where are those forms of optimization and prediction going to be helpful in addressing the very real challenges that we face in the 21st century? And where aren't they useful? And to do that, I think we need to strip away a lot of this mythology around intelligence um, and to be looking with far clearer eyes around where these systems work for us and, and where they fail us. Kate, one of the things that I really loved about your book was uh, the different levels of scale that you were working at. So maybe more on the local side, but then you also went out to the planetary side. How can we think about scale in terms of building maybe more just systems of AI or is scale maybe a, um, by definition a problem in us building those models? I love this question um, for, for many reasons, but certainly, I mean, from the perspective of writing this book and, and wanting to bring in different scalar forms of thinking, I was really inspired. Weirdly, I'm not sure if you know this, this fantastic film and book that was produced um, by uh, Ray and Charles Eames called Powers of Ten, which is all about scale and how we might look at the planet. Um, strong recommend uh, for pandemic viewing. You can you can find it um, on the internet very easily. Um, but it, it's it sort of, for me, has always offered a way of trying to look at systems um, from different perspectives. But it's interesting that scale has also been a major fault line, I think, through the way that technical systems are built and, and, and how they're imagined to work in the world, which is that you know so many of the errors and problems that we're finding is because something was designed to scale over a sort of a mass population rather than thinking about variegations and experience, about difference, about how people actually experience the world differently. So in that sense, the way in which technical systems are used to scale is, I think, one of the core problems that we need to do far more thinking about and, and far more work on. And it's actually something that um, I've really been enjoying uh, sort of working with colleagues like Michael Medeo at MSR and Mike Anony at USC Annenberg, um, working specifically on this, this concept of scale and where I think it, it trips us up in, in technical system design. From the perspective of social science and studying science and technology, I think it's really important that we meet technical systems at different levels of scale, that we study them there, that we go to those places and, and understand the way that scalar levels actually intersect. And I think for me, the, the real watershed moment in, in my past that really helped me sort of shift the way I was, was researching these questions was actually when I was doing a project called The Anatomy of AI with Vladan Jola. We, we started that, gosh, I think it was over five years ago now, where we really wanted to look at the life cycle of a single Amazon Echo to, to go from birth to life, from how the sort of components were mined and smelted and shipped all the way through to the e-waste tips where these devices are discarded generally in less than four years and they end up in these sort of toxic waste dumps in places like Ghana and Pakistan. And in doing the, the really extensive research behind that project, which was, you know, I'll be honest with you, extraordinarily difficult. Like you're, you're trying to dig into supply chains that, that, that are intentionally kept opaque. You know, a lot of mining companies don't want you looking into, you know, where these minerals come from or how people are paid or, or not paid to produce them. Um, same goes for studying uh, deep learning systems. It's extremely difficult and again, 
in many cases, proprietary. I mean, good luck getting a look at the sort of large scale training sets that say a Facebook or a Google use. Um, so in doing that project, uh, it was really extraordinary for me to, to realize that this was just looking at a single device. What would happen if we changed the scale and looked at the entire AI industry? And that was really one of the, 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 the big sort of central motivations behind creating Atlas of AI. Um, so scale is important, but it's also really difficult. So I think researchers also have to struggle with and, and work with uh, that, that need to look at how technical systems affect us at so many different scales every day. Let's dig into that motivation a little bit more, because one of the things that both Dylan and I really loved about this book was that you brought so much of yourself into it at times, and you were sharing stories of things that you went and visited and saw to uncover some things like these uh, inequitable supply chains. And so what does this book mean for you? Why this book and why now? Oh, I mean, this is this is such a good question. And of course, there's always a lot of telescoping of time in saying why now, because books are so long that, you know, if, if you told me uh, five and a half years ago that when this book came out, it would be during a, a pandemic and that we'd be where we are with the tech industry, um, really moving ever deeper into the interstices of you know work and education and healthcare, I, I would have been very surprised, I'll tell you that. But there, there are some things that don't surprise me that are certainly consistent patterns um, that have simply become intensified since I, I first began this project. So, I mean, I think to really answer that question means to sort of dig into so many of the concerns that motivate uh, each one of sort of the chapters of this book. And I'll give you an example of one of them. Um, when I first started writing about the issue of bias in large-scale technical systems, it was back in 2012, would you believe it? Um, and back then, you know, I would remember sort of you know, giving talks and writing papers and people would say, do you really think this issue of bias is a thing? I mean, the more data we have, the more objective systems become. We know that. So, I mean, this issue is simply going to go away in a couple of years, Kate. Why are you looking at it? <laughs> you know, I, was, I was always kind of really mystified by that response. But obviously, you know, in the, in the gosh, nine years since, um, we've seen that problem simply become more and more extreme um, as these systems had more and more data. So certainly those sorts of presumptions, I think, have been upended. Um, and you know, it's, it was, it's always been clear to me that this term bias itself is actually unhelpfully narrow and I think easily captured by industry to say, oh, well, you know, it's bias and, and we've, we've simply, you know, technically addressed that. We've, we've fixed it or we've collected more data and it's no longer biased anymore. These, I think, are fundamental misunderstandings of what's going on. And in many ways, it comes from the term bias itself means very different things in statistics as it does in law, as it does in sociology. So I think in many ways, we're speaking at cross purposes when we use a term like that. And it, and it simply doesn't go far enough into the logics of how technical systems are built and constructed. So, I mean, I gave a, I gave a talk at Europe's back in 2017 called The Trouble with Bias, which for me was, was really about suggesting that we needed to look at this much bigger question of classification. Um, and for me, that's been a big, big motivation in the book um, over many years is sort of looking at how classifications work and how classifications have always worked for centuries to essentially uh, centralize forms of power, to create 
the social categories in which people can be counted, understood, uh, denominated, and then how, do, how does that actually translate into technical systems and what work is being done when classifications are accepted at whole cloth? I mean, we see that with uh, racial classifications, with gender, gender binary classifications, which, believe it or not, are still in these technical systems to this day, which always, you know, is utterly extraordinary to me, um, but much more, much sort of, I guess, even at a granular level, how people are being categorized into uh, emotional categories. Uh, as we know, Ekman's six emotions, which are being read by emotion detection AI systems, despite the fact that we have so many studies saying that you simply cannot detect internal emotional states from external facial expressions. Um, we also have systems that are classifying you by character and by personality. Um, this was something that became really clear in sort of working with things like the ImageNet uh, data set. It's, it's extraordinary how many categories are about your moral character or your worth as, as a person. So for me, that's, that's one of the big shifts that um, in this book uh, I was really focused on, which is we have to move this debate on. I think it's it's stuck in a repeating loop where we're really not addressing um, sort of these these core questions. So that's one example of of sort of the motivating forces um, that have sort of turned into this 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 atlas. Not to dive too much more into the philosophical, but I'm going to. Um, what what you're saying. Uh, makes me think of like Foucault's work on us being disciplined into categories. Um, and I'm just curious about categories in general, because they're obviously being embedded into our artificial intelligence systems. What can we do about categories? Because they're also a way that we make sense of the world as humans. So are there elements uh, that you think categories can be helpful as we talk about AI and, and AI justice? Or um, is it something that we should possibly distance and start in terms of the categorization. Well, you're absolutely right that this this takes us back to Foucault. It takes us to the feminist phenomenologists who've written about this for many years. Um, this The term that uh, Sestina uses and others is this idea of the epistemic machinery, that categories become the epistemic machinery of, of how technical systems, quote unquote, see the world. Um, so it's not something that we can avoid. It's not as though you're going to sort of create categoryless ways of understanding, or if so, we're yet to do it um, in the way that machine learning works today. But I think certainly how we start to engage with the work of categories is now something that is it's, it's extremely urgent. Um, so I'm thinking here of you know the ways in which uh, again, because I spend so much time looking at, at training data sets, they, they often build on each other. So they often just import a previous training set and say, oh, we'll just use that as our ground truth. So I'm thinking here of ImageNet importing WordNet. And of course, WordNet itself was also shaped by things like the Brown Corpus, um, which was produced back in the 1960s. So you have these genealogical layers of categories that sort of build on each other and on each other. And, and these are in many cases, I think, profoundly shifting sands to be, to be building on. I mean, so many of the words, if you, if you go back and look at ImageNet, uh, these sort of word categories come from sort of very 
old and traditional forms of English speech that might have been more common in the 1930s and 40s, but look, you know, completely bizarre today. Um, and, you know, there, there are sort of words like trollop and slattern um, and, you know, Jezebel, which, you know, again, you know, we, we use now as kind of like a fond affectation, but it certainly was not when it was used that way in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and again, these sorts of the way that language is a product of culture, it's always changing. It is constantly in flux. But our technical systems fix language into place as though that is a constant. We see this problem again now with GPT-3 uh, in the way that if you, you know, put in a word like Muslim, one of the most sort of common responses you get is uh, text that's associated with terrorism. And this is something that um, Sulin Bodget has done work on as well. And you know, for me, these are the sorts of issues that we strike again and again, which is how are we essentially crystallizing artifacts of the past, language artifacts, image artifacts, and then using them to create the systems of the future. And that as a way of making knowledge as epistemic machinery is what we have to do far more work contending with. Because if we don't, we're gonna repeat the errors of the past. We're going to take in whole cloth those structural biases which are racial and gendered and classed and take them as though they should be perpetuated when absolutely we should be doing the opposite. Now, bridging from the present and the historical pieces of this book and I guess the earthly pieces of this book and into the future and into space, uh, you actually end your book uh, in your, your coda chapter on space and what is happening in AI technology and in the AI disciplines specifically around space travel and what it means for humanity. And could you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, you know, this was for me one of the one of the kind of really curious uh, experiences of writing this book was was looking at the ways in which the sort of capital logics of AI, the enormous amounts of money that has been generated by um, a very small handful of people. Where is it going? And so I was looking at the sort of the, the real sort of tech billionaires, the Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezoses. Where, where are they now investing their money? And it is extraordinary to see how many of them are really investing in outer space, in creating a new, entirely privatized space race. Now, you know, for me, that is problematic on many levels, but certainly it looks to an underlying ethic which is that the planet has really reached the end of its use-by date and that we have to start looking to either, you know, forms of mining and extraction on asteroids, which is, you know, certainly one of the things that um, uh, many of the, of the space companies that I research are now currently doing, but also this sort of, I think, mythic idea of living on Mars that Elon Musk is, is extremely wedded to. Um, without any of the sort of you know, deep science that has been done around the extraordinary difficulty of space travel, of let alone living on different planets, the, the degree of which you'd have to abrogate the responsibility for the problems here that we wouldn't be spending those many billions of dollars on addressing core issues like climate change, uh, labor justice, um, core sort of food security questions that we, that we now face on this planet. To me, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And so I, I really looked into um, 
you know, how some of these billionaires sort of have, have come to this, this way of thinking. And for me, Blue Origin was, was one of the most interesting sites to study. This is, of course, Jeff Bezos' space company. Um, and Jeff Bezos has, has said in, you know, in many talks that he was inspired by Eugene O'Neill and Eugene O'Neill's sort of vision of humans living in these sorts of floating space satellite colonies and that to me is ultimately coming up this idea of growth. Can we maintain the sort of growth that we've seen um, over the last century going forward? Personally, I think that is profoundly unethical. I don't think we can. This idea that we must maintain growth has, has brought us to the precipice that, that we are now on. But this is, this is the belief and I think the great hope behind so many of these sort of space mining and space colonization initiatives. Whereas in so many ways, we have to really question that idea of constant engines of economic growth because we know who it serves. It's serving by far and away the few and not the many on the one planet that we currently have. Um, so, you know, for me going to those places, again, I, I went and visited um, Jeff Bezos's space base out in West, in West Texas, uh, where he has a reusable rocket landing base um, and, that was, you know, that to me was, again, one of those extraordinary landscapes to, to think about where these ideologies of AI are taking us because you have this huge Permian Basin. It's sort of massive plain um, in Texas. And I was sort of standing up on a, on, a, on a mountain ridge, sort of looking down at the space base, uh, standing on public land. And it's the most ancient landscape that is already suffering, you know, from extreme uh, drought and, and so many of the other sorts of climate pressures we're on. And then when I got back in the car after taking photos of the space base, I had this moment of sort of looking behind me and realizing I was being followed by these sort of black security vehicles. And it was, it was like, I, I'd done all the research. I knew this was public land. I knew I was standing where I could stand, but like I was clearly like being ushered away um, and I, they were right, actually tailing me in a really quite sort of threatening way and I pulled over at one point and I thought, what's going to happen here? You know, I'm just going to sit here in this car and wait and see what happens. Um, and they just sat there right behind me and nobody got out of the car. And I didn't get out of the car and it, and it was like, okay, I'm just going to start driving again and they escorted me all the way out of this huge desert valley. It was like, it was extraordinary and for me it was another sort of moment of thinking about this relationship between public and private commons, between who these infrastructures are being built for, who's welcome and who is not welcome there. And I think that a lot about these, these visions of space, you know, who is going to most benefit from these, these visions and what does that mean for the rest of us? So for me, ending the book there was, you know, a really important part of the journey was not just for me to go out to the sort of outer reaches of, of where capital is reaching, which is of course in outer space, but to think about, you know, what is this vision of the world and, and, and who are we responsible to? And ultimately, how do we reground that responsibility in our communities and, and on this planet? One of the things that struck me in this conversation is that we're talking about a lot of myths or stories or narratives, um, whether it's like the Cartesian myth or whether it's this like concept that capitalism can keep growing and unbridled like GDP and that's how we know we're going to be quote unquote like successful, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, the uh, democracies and, and how AI is impacting those. And, and I guess my question is, 
what then do we do with those myths? Do we try to replace them with new myths that are more equitable for everyone? Or uh, do we just continue to challenge them? Like what, what can we practically do? What can listeners, I guess, do with those myths that may be actively harmful right now? Ultimately, I think it's, it's really about, you know, why are we building these systems? Who benefits and who is harmed? And, and grounding these questions empirically, grounding them ethnographically, uh, doing the work of actually understanding whether a system is in fact concentrating power into fewer hands. If you are right now building technical systems and you are able to say, no, this tool actually challenges existing concentrated forms of power, then I think you are actively working against those sorts of sort of mythic structures. But for me, I think the most optimistic sort of experience of writing this book um, and of speaking to, to so many uh, researchers and activists and artists and people who are actually um, working on these issues has really been to see the ways in which these core political movements, movements for climate justice, movements for labor rights, movements for data protections, which have always been separate and they've always been very siloed, are in some ways being brought together right now by this conversation around artificial intelligence because everybody has a stake in it because these systems you know are touching so many people's lives and people can see sort of the downsides and the ways in which their lives are being negatively impacted so to me that's actually a story of, of coalition building of how do we actually create new political coalitions to really address these core underlying logics and i think in some ways you know we we do have to to look at sort of uh, the logics even more than the, the sort of the, the the mythic structures behind these systems, because the, the logics are actually very plain to see. We can look at how they are funded. We can look at who they are serving. We can look at how the systems work. Um, I think really going to that level with a much clearer eye and looking at that at different scales is so much of, of, of what is needed right now. But it's a really important question because Again, you know, for me, this is one of the big challenges. We have seen this profound centralization of, of, of power through the deployment of AI at a planetary scale. So how are we going to work against that and actually preserve the sorts of core values and tenets um, that we want to see in terms of justice, equality and democracy more generally? So now that Atlas of AI is officially out all over the world for all of us who are going to be running to our local indie bookstores to try to purchase it as quickly as we can, what is, if you were to speak to all of your future readers at once, what would you hope would be one of their biggest takeaways from reading this book? Well, I love that you mentioned independent bookstores, Jess. That, that makes me happy immediately. Um, so I think really my hope is that we can shift this conversation about artificial intelligence away from this narrow technical focus to really look at artificial intelligence as deeply interconnected at this planetary level between chains of the environment, labor and data. And once we do that, once we sort of make that scalar shift, I think we can really start to ask this question around what does justice look like in relation to technical systems? What kinds of expectations can we have about the way that these systems should serve us and not us serving them? And then finally, you know, how do we think about really addressing the kind of profound inequalities, not just you know, in our own communities and our own countries, but 
the global inequalities that are really fueling the way that these technical systems are currently working in the world. So for me, you know, that that would be the great hope. And, you know, certainly if I, you know, in my experience of like spending so much time in archives as well in the last, you know, last few years is really trying to sort of think about the ways in which artificial intelligence can be different. We can design different sorts of systems. And, and the ones that we have today are really a reflection of, you know, the, the very sort of, I think, in some ways, sort of small groups that have been designing technical systems coming out of, uh, in many cases, computer science and engineering training that was really separate to these broader social, economic and ecological concerns. Um, we can shift that. We are at a moment where we have to shift that. And it means really breaking those silos down and creating a much more holistic way of looking at the way that these systems work and affect us. Um, and that is, you know, again, from the very beginning, when we first begin to construct these systems, all the way through to once they're actually deployed in the world, to go back and, and see how they're affecting people. Do people want these systems? Are these systems actually serving us? So for me, that's the question of really what kind of world do we want to be living in, rather than simply focusing on what sort of technology do we want to build? So, Kate, I couldn't have had this conversation without at least making a brief mention of the fact that you have played a huge role in my own work and in the role of many women in the responsible tech community and also uh, men and Dylan and other people that I have come in contact with as well. And so we just wanted to send a sincere and huge appreciation and gratitude your way for doing all the work that you have done for our community for so many years and now summarizing a lot of that work in this book. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts with us today. And thank you so much for coming on this show to talk with us. It's absolutely true that this podcast would not exist without your scholarship and the foundation that you've laid. So while we have you on the line, thank you so much. Oh, that is just so profoundly lovely. Thank you both, Jess and Dylan. And I want to thank you for the work that you've been doing with this podcast. You've really brought together a community and made it possible for so many people in this field and beyond to really hear about the work that's happening from so many leading researchers. And that's thanks to you. And frankly, I couldn't do the work that I do without the communities that I'm in. And everything is always a reflection of those sort of wider collective conversations and incredible communities of support. So thank you. It, it means so much and keep doing this extraordinary work. I think it's pretty obvious from the end of that interview, but Kate is such a huge hero of ours. And like we said, just such a reason why this podcast exists in the first place. So we would like to thank her for that wonderful conversation. And one of the things um, that I was really reflecting on after that conversation, before we recorded this outro, is just how that interview tied everything together, how Kate's book tied this first year of the podcast all together, all these different interviews in which we've looked at so many different topics and this atlas of AI uh, that Kate has brought into the world just feels like almost a, a culmination for us in some ways, which is kind of weird to say, but it's just such a, 
a landmark of where this field is. And we're, you know, we've been lucky enough to be part of the community telling the stories of this field as it's changed, you know, even within the last year. And so as just said in the intro of this episode, it's uh, an honor to be conversing with Kate about all these topics because all these topics have become part of our lives, much like all of our guests have become part of our lives in some really amazing and, and unexpected ways. Um, and so like to be talking to this, again, as just said, like this dream guest of ours as just like was uh, incredible um, to be in conversation with this brilliant, brilliant scholar. And what a symbolic way for us to wrap up this first year of the podcast and of this project together is by ending on such a high note with somebody that we never could have dreamt of having on the podcast originally. And now we are not only talking with her about her new book, but we're recognizing that all of the topics that she's bringing up are things that we have been able to speak with other amazing scholars in this field about on this show and I I love that we got into labor in a new way than what we've already seen with people like Vina Duball and Mary L. Gray and Zanale Maniqua and we talked about bias and even shouted out uh, Sulin Blodgett who we recently had an episode with and we talked about some new topics as well like space which I think we definitely need to do an episode on after having had this conversation with Kate because now I have so many thoughts about space and um just it's it's funny right because i think when we were talking about like what are some of the topics we want to cover also in like one of those brainstorming sessions before we launch it was like we want to talk about space but like no one's ever going to want to talk about space with us so like who can we talk to who's like an expert on this and lo and behold kate crawford was the one to bring (laughs) space into our lives The environmental impacts of artificial intelligence and the economic systems behind them is a topic that we've touched on, uh, but we haven't gone as in-depth as we did in this interview, and it's so important. It's so key for the you know future of life on Earth, um, and especially for us to be in touch with that materiality that Kate brings to the table. And, uh, you know, the example that I used earlier in, in the conversation about how I've heard a lot of people... Um, both in academia and industry, talk about artificial intelligence as if it's this thing that exists in the ether that is disembodied, um, or it's just like this this myth or just this engineering problem. And to Kate's point, no, this is actually really based in minerals. It's really based in computing power. It's really based in microchips and where those come from, which is from the earth. Um, And then also the downstream impacts pun intended because it's about streams um but this is this is real and this is stuff that we need to start paying attention to and if we don't there will be uh, real consequences for all of us and also for humanity going into the future um just what stood out to you about this planetary conversation Yeah, I think when we were having the conversation with Kate about the planetary impact of AI, I was actually taken to a space that I haven't thought about in a while, but um, back when the cloud was like a big buzzword that everybody was talking about, but nobody really quite understood, myself included, I was one of those people who thought that the cloud was this like ethereal untangible thing that housed all of our digital infrastructure and data that just existed in a realm beyond what we could actually touch or feel in our physical world. 
and I learned quickly that that was not the case and that the cloud is actually just a bunch of server farms that exist very much in the physical world on our earth and have a lot of very negative impacts on our world, uh, including the the cost of computing and the energy expense that, um, that comes from having to run so many servers at once for these large corporations. But I think I was just, I was put in this headspace where I was kind of taken aback by how often I assume that AI and computing technology and algorithms are just these like non-physical magical things that exist. And I forget so often that they have real world impacts on our earth and on our natural resources. And and that just every time that that hits me again and again, it, it always makes me take a step back and pause and and reflect on what that means for our discipline and for our planet. And as we heard in this conversation, sometimes, maybe most of the time, that's by design, right? Like there are people trailing Kate when she goes to investigate, uh, you know, certain people's space operations, their space bases, as I might call them. but but it's it's like it's insidious, right? It's like we talk. Uh, Jess, I think we were talking, you know, a few months ago about dark patterns in uh, online spaces and in, in websites or devices, and it it almost feels that way here, where like the stories and the narratives that we're telling about even like the most optimistic, like we're gonna get to Mars, right? Underneath there are these other uh, narratives and stories and theories and, and all that that are. Uh, actively feeding into either some sort of utopia or dystopia to get people to do something, which sounds conspiracy theory-ish, but really after reading Kate's book, some of that's real. Like the information that that you just shared about like the cloud, um, and if you like, you look at the history of how the branding around the cloud, it's like, oh, this is nice. It's like, oh, this fluffy cloud or this dark cloud. I can see it out my window. This is, so, this is the power of language, right? This is why the work of Sulin Blodgett and Emily Bender um, and, and Tid McGebra and, and other folks in that space are, is so important to be like, what are we signifying here? And what are the stories that are coming out of, um, especially industry who, because of our capitalist system, largely are looking to make a profit and that's the way you do it using behavior psychology and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that gets into another thing that we talked about in this interview, which is around categories and the power of language and, and the whole conversation we had about categories is just like right up my philosophical alley. Um, but, uh, it's, it, it really, I mean, it matters, right? It matters how we even think about AI and the stories we tell about AI, um, which, a lot of AI is doing categorization and replicating that social categorization that we already do in some very harmful ways. Jess, any thoughts on categories or anything else that was brought up in this interview? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't formally trained as a social scientist like you were, Dylan, but more recently I've been having to take some social science leaning classes for the first time ever. And I I was recently introduced to um, some topics of classification and categorization and structures as they exist in society. So I've been thinking about this so much lately. And uh, Kate had a quote during the interview um, where she said that categorization was the epistemic machinery of how AI sees the world. And I had to write that down because I just thought that was such a 
a hitting <laughs> representation of, of the problems with categorization and classification in AI systems. And it was said so well and so succinctly because um, we, we often talk about bias and we did this recently with Sulin Blodgett. We talk about bias and how it is perpetuated in our data sets and it exists in these models and these systems and there's no way to avoid it. And we haven't talked all that much about categorization. And I think that there's some specific topics within categorization and AI that are commonly brought up, like categorizing gender or categorizing race um, or categorizing even emotions, I guess, as, as was brought up in Kate's book. But I think that just the larger construct of categorization as a topic and as something that AI perpetuates is problematic in itself, as Kate was saying. And the fact that we are teaching AI to see, quote, in the same way that humans see in our categorizing and biased and super subjectively structural way is scary. It's very, it's spooky to me. As we come back to this word a lot on our show, it's very, it's a spooky concept to think about AI thinking about humans in the way that humans think about humans. It is spooky. That's my favorite word. Um, <laughs> for me, the, one of the reasons why I uh, respect Kate's scholarship so much is that it draws from so many different traditions, right? Like Kate, uh, as you were just quoting, right, brings in feminist theory, um, is bringing in other philosophical traditions. We talked about Descartes today. Uh, and also Kate is grounded in computer science and knows that training data, knows how to implement that training data. And all of those uh different knowledge bases and traditions she uh, brings together so well and so beautifully in this book and in uh, Kate's other work as well. But, but in this book, I was just blown away by how many different areas that Kate covered. Um, while also just each chapter was more profound than the last. So part of the, the part of why we did this episode, right, is to tell you to buy this book. Um, so hopefully we uh, have have proven our point um, and that Kate has has also pushed you towards buying this book because this is something that I think all of us who study this stuff, uh, we need it in our library, right? We, we should not be studying this stuff or making an impact on this stuff without uh, at least knowing what this book says. And as Kate said before the interview started, uh, she said to us on, on our Zoom call together that she was planning on leading some um, classes and workshops where each chapter had like a week long of lessons. And so um, we thought that was super fitting for uh, this book because each chapter has honestly like years worth of lessons for this field as a whole, and especially if you're interested in responsible technology, this is an amazing starting point. So uh, really, if you are considering it, check our show notes. We will have links to um, all of the indie bookstores that you can imagine for finding your copy of the book. And um, unfortunately, we wish we had more time to talk about all of this because like we said, this could be years worth of conversations, uh, but we're trying to fit it into one podcast episode. So we'll leave it at that for today. But for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast 
Podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every other week on Wednesdays. Make sure to buy this book, Atlas of AI by Kate Crawford, and join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. Radical.